Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. There are times uh, in the life of our church and in any church uh, where pastors may have to go, many of the pastors of this church have had need to go to other places and to work with other churches to resolve issues, to help in pastoral care of our members and other members. Uh, That's where Pastor Bailey is this weekend. He's in another city in another state, uh, working to resolve some pastoral issues for, for the benefit of some of our members and for the benefit of other churches. Also, uh, Elder Brian Bailey is there. And my report that I've heard from them, the report I've heard from them, is that the work is going very well. And so I think Brian is returning today, and I think Pastor Bailey intends to return tomorrow. And so... Uh, Continue to pray for them in that, and he will be back uh, soon to be with us again. Let's look now to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And we're continuing our sermon series on the parables of Jesus. And this morning's parable has a somewhat uncharacteristic beginning. In it, we are told specifically to whom Jesus is speaking. And it's not often in parables that that is done. So let's begin reading in verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people, to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that this parable given by your Son to us will be understood, and that we, in fact, will be taught and warned and provoked to obedience to you in hearing it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you have two men that Jesus uh, talks about in the parable, but as he addresses the parable, he says that This parable was told to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And of course, immediately, you're going to know who that is because you have one man 
who is obviously viewing another with contempt, and so he's the man that's trusting in himself as he, as he lists off his accomplishments and how he lives. And he is the Pharisee. The Pharisees were a religious order at the time, the time surrounding Jesus Christ. They were very, very uh, devout, very pious. Um, they had actually taken the laws of the Old Testament and they had made a list. And I think there were 613 uh, laws in the Pharisees' lists. These, this is, you know, you could actually go and view them. 613 laws. I'll keep these 613 laws, and that's how they check it off, check it off, check it off, check it off. I've kept it. And so here this Pharisee is. He's, he is one who is understood to be a man who is, at the time, seen by the people, some of the people, as hypocritical. He's seen as self-righteous. Jesus knows this, and Jesus knows that those who don't see him as self-righteous need to understand that he's that way, and so he's exposing the Pharisee. The tax collector is a different kind of man at the time. The tax collector is a man who everyone knew it's not like tax collectors today. Today, the IRS we think of as the tax collectors, right? But you don't have an IRS agent come to your house unless you're being audited. And then he comes to your house, and he's still not really a tax collector. He's an auditor. And so when the audit is done, and you certainly will owe money, when the audit is done, he's going to look at you and, and say, write me a check. Give me the cash. Do you have any valuables in the house? No, he's not. He's going to present you with a bill. You're going to write it out to the United States Treasury, and it's going to go over there, right? But at this time, tax collectors were very different. They were men who represented the, the governing body or whoever was in, in charge, whoever had the power to exact collection of people's taxes. So he had their force behind him, and he was basically a man hired to do the work. So he was like a, a subcontractor of sorts. And he might have a place of business where he operated, or he might actually go to people's businesses and, and uh, shake them down for their money. But the fact was that when they gave their money, they didn't write him a check to the IRS or whatever the equivalent would be at the time. They didn't have checks. He literally said, okay, give me the money. He'd tell them how much, and then they'd bring out the money. And it was very common for this man to be on the take. And so he would really shake them down. He would collect more because he would be like a Mexican traffic cop. You know, if you've ever been to Mexico, somebody uh, in this room whose initials are Mike Bowles was pulled over in Mexico <laughs> some time ago. And the man tried to shake him down. He wanted, his, he wanted a bribe. So his, you know, give me the money. Got anything valuable? Come on. And so you want to have Mike tell you that story because it's really comical. Uh, with a traffic policeman in Mexico trying to figure out whether he's going to haul Mike and Lisa to jail or stay out in the, uh, in the highways and the byways so he can collect some more money. I don't know. But ask him the story. So a tax collector is like that in the time. He is a man who's on the take. Right? And you say, so you have the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they're together in the temple. And what is the Pharisee's posture? Well, he's a man who's proud. And how does a proud man stand? Well, 
proud man stands like this. He stood in the temple. And it's obvious he's standing probably in a place of prominence because you're getting the contrast between him and the tax collector. It says the tax collector went off by himself. The Pharisee's probably not off by himself. He's probably in a place where everybody can see him, perhaps hear him. The tax collector's eyes are down. The Pharisee's eyes are probably up. Maybe he's talking out loud. I don't know. It says he prays to himself. I don't know what that means. I don't know if it means that nobody could hear him or whether he was addressing his prayer to himself, and that's what's being said in the Scripture, that he really was talking to himself and not to God, which is an interesting thought because his prayer certainly wasn't heard. So he's standing there and he's praying and his, his eyes are probably up and he's, his posture is probably very proud and, and even if he's a man who can fake humility, he's going to fake humility the way people who fake humility do it. Have you ever seen someone fake humility? It's, uh, it's kind of like this kind of... Just your humble servant, you know. It's kind of your eyes up and your head's not bowed like this. Your head's bowed like this, you know. So you're, you're not really being humble. You're just kind of looking for people's reaction. Are they buying it? And so this is the Pharisee's posture. Thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm different from others. I'm special. You're fortunate to have me addressing you. I'm not a swindler, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, or even like that tax collector over there. Here's a list of the people I'm not like. And then here's a list of all the good things I do. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all I get. Here's just a few of my accomplishments. Obviously, he believed he had something, when in actuality he did not. He thought he was holding a winning hand. When I first moved to Toledo years ago to plant a church, I worked at a, well, it's called DeVil, it used to be called DeVilbus. They made air compressors for shops. I worked in the warehouse. I drove a clamp truck. I drove a forklift. I picked orders, and we sent them out on semis. And there was a crew of people that worked there. We had two breaks a day and a lunchtime, right? So we sat down at breaks, and there was nothing to do. The break room was, you know, uh, how can I say it? It was a room that they construct out of panels in the middle of a warehouse. It was just depressing. And so the normal thing to do during break time or lunch time would be to play euchre. If you've ever played euchre, it's a card game that involves one suit of the cards being trump. So there's a high card and a low, the highest card all the way down to the lowest card. You play around a circle of four people, two teams, and you try to get the most tricks, hands off the cards as it goes around. And so the secret is to have the right strategy to play and to try to figure out what your partner's going to do. So you play with a good strategy to win as many tricks and thus take the whole thing. I, I don't know. I don't remember what to call it anymore. But this one fellow that we had there, he would play the euchre game, and uh, he, would be, he would be holding his cards, and of course, you, you lay down cards in sequence around a circle, and so the first card that goes down might be the highest card in the deck, and you know that hand is going to go to that guy, 
right? And then there's every kind of continuum between that and the lowest card. So if some other card but the highest card is played, you know that it could at any time be trumped and that trick could be taken. Everybody understand the concept, right? Card games on Sunday morning. <laughs> and so we're playing the game, we're going around in the circle, and this one fellow, he would take out his card, and it seemed like he had such confidence that his card was the winning card so often. And as he laid his card down, he may be the second one putting his card down, he would take his card, and he would kind of rise up out of his chair a little bit, and he'd go, Boom! Throw that down on the table. Boom! And so what? Inevitably, the third or fourth guy laying down their card would say, double boom, you know. And, but he never seemed to learn. He just kept doing it and doing it that way. And here is our Pharisee. Boom! Here I am. And he's got nothing. He's got nothing. He's holding nothing. And the Pharisees were like this. They were like this. They were like the Sadducees in opposing Jesus. And Jesus warned his disciples against their influence. Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 16, 6, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Watch out and beware. And I was trying to think of an example of us warning people away from others today. And I, we do. We warn our children not to get in cars with strangers, not to talk to strangers. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. Not a, I don't know what, what kind of warnings we give, but I got to thinking about this and I thought, it's not very often that we warn people today. It has to really rise to a high spot before we would warn them, before we would warn them about something. And Jesus is warning a group, he's warning his disciples about a group of men and about the reality of their, about the reality that they're like leaven, they're like yeast. And he's saying, beware of them. And I think we might consider, and you might consider with your uh, circle of influence and the people in your small group and your children, that there are times when you need to warn people to beware, but that's a side issue. And Jesus is telling them to beware of the Pharisees and the Pharisees were pious. They believed the law. They would sing the Ten Commandments with us, were they here? Right? Luke 12, 1 through 5. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he, that is Jesus, began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed or, and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The Pharisee trusted in himself, and Jesus warned the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And so what? 
everything is going to be revealed. Now, I was trying to think about how we would all understand hypocrisy today and how the world would understand hypocrisy, and I thought, well, what if you had a climate change enthusiast, right? And the climate change enthusiast was very wealthy, and so in order to get to a climate change uh, summit on the other side of the world, he climbed into his, you know, giant personal jet, 747, and he flew all the way around the world so he could go to the climate change summit. That's hypocrisy. We all hear about it in our time today. We all hear, everybody who's heard about Al Gore's house in Tennessee burning up 50 million tons of coal every year, raise your hand, right? And so the world understands hypocrisy. It understands when claims are made and things are believed. It understands when when the people who make the claims and believe the things aren't living up to the things that they're saying. They understand that. But here we're talking about something different because we're talking about our lives, every action of our lives, what we profess, and that everything, everything in our lives, all the things we think are hidden, all the things we think nobody knows, all the things the Pharisee thought were hidden, all the things the Pharisee thought nobody knew, everything will be revealed. It will be exposed up on the rooftop like the laundry on a big clothesline. Just exposed. And not only that, but it's not the fear of somebody who knows you and can reject you or can even kill your body for the things you have done. It's not the fear of those people that you should be concerned about. It's the fear of the one who, after he has killed your body in judgment, because he is the just judge, can take your body and soul and cast them into hell. And that is Almighty God. And so Jesus is warning the disciples, be careful of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Stay away from the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Everything is going to be revealed in time. Be afraid of the judge. And so the Holy Spirit starts off our, our, uh, our, our uh, parable today. Jesus, as he's speaking, he says, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves. Well, who are the some people? Who are the some people? It's a pretty big set. Because if you take all the people who are capable of trusting in themselves and all the people who are presently trusting in themselves, you have a set that includes all the people. Every one of us. And so he says, beware of the leaven. If you know what leaven is, it's basically just yeast. If you've never made bread, you take flour, you put yeast in it, and water or milk or butter, I don't know, what, some stuff like that. You don't want to eat my bread. Okay, you put this in there, and you and and what happens to that yeast? It's live organisms, and they go it goes all through that that flour, and what it does is it 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 eats the sugar, and it turns it into uh, carbon dioxide and and now some kind of alcohol, right? And then the the bread dough rises. It's the bubbles from the carbon dioxide, and that yeast goes all the way through. It just keeps eating and eating and eating because it's alive. It's having a feast. And the Pharisee was there, a fully yeast-infected 
full-bore gluten Pharisee. And the disciples are made of flour. They're just flour, bags of flour. And Jesus says, beware, be careful. Be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees. It is hypocrisy. The fundamental difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector is that the Pharisee wasn't afraid of God. He thought God must approve of him because he had some outward conformity, something that he thought was his own merit. And that's the standard by which he judged himself. He, he listed himself or thought of himself against other men. So he listed examples of other men. He said, I'm not like swindlers. I'm not like the unjust or adulterers or even this tax collector. And then he listed his merits. I tithe, twice, I tithe fast twice a week. I give a tithe of everything I have. And on and on and on. This parable is directed to people who need a course correction. It's directed to the Pharisee. It's directed to people who are yeast-infected hypocrites or who are capable of becoming yeast-infected hypocrites. And it says that you need to change course or be careful that you never deviate into that course. And then what it says is that the tax collector is on the correct course. And that's strange, isn't it? It's counterintuitive to think that the tax collector, the guy that extorts money, is actually okay by this parable. He's doing all right. How can that be if he's a sinner? Well, the fact is that he's truthful about himself and that he approaches his need based on his knowledge of himself and his knowledge of God. He knew that God was completely holy and is. And he knew that he was not. And that was the foundation of his prayer. Isn't it interesting? Have mercy on me, the sinner. The sinner. I am the sinner. What was his posture? Well, he stands off in the side and he has his head down. And he may feel himself, the weight of the reality of his sin, separating him from everybody else like leprosy separates the leper. And they're off by themselves somewhere. And so he's off by himself and he's beating his breast and his head is down and he's pleading with God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not complicated. Simple. He was clearly speaking to God. He wasn't comparing himself to any other man. I am the sinner. Here I am. He's not padding his resume. I am the sinner. Have mercy on me. I've got nothing. I've got nothing. He was afraid of the judge, but he believed in the mercy and the kindness of the judge. And so he pled with the judge for mercy. At the same time, the Pharisee thought God would certainly side with him. And not only side with him, but even side with him against the tax collector. Because he thought himself worthy. Now I want to read a quote to you from a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, but I have to give you a background to the quote because in the quote, Spurgeon tells a story about George Whitfield 
and a woman named Selina Hastings, who was the Countess of Huntingdon. And so I want to tell you who she is. You might know who George Whitfield is. You might know who Charles Spurgeon is. Charles Spurgeon was an English Baptist preacher a couple of centuries ago. Um, Selina Hastings was an important character in the Great Awakening, a revival that occurred in England about, what is it, three centuries ago? Somebody help me. Lucas is shaking his head, so it must be perfectly true. The countess was wealthy and extremely influential. She was a benefactress to George Whitfield and many other preachers in the Great Awakening. She helped found a pastor's college. She established several churches or helped to do so. She was one of the key persons in the Great Awakening. She did so many things. It was just amazing. Just, just incredible. Uh, they think that she may have given away as much as 100,000 pounds to churches, church plants, pastors in the course of her lifetime. And 100,000 pounds at that time was a worth a lot. That's a lot of pounds, okay? And so she was a person that generally, I think, was very humble. And uh, she actually stipulated in her will that she did not want anyone to write a biography of her. And so they actually didn't do that for 90 years after her death. It was 90 years before anyone wrote a biography of her. Somebody broke the promise, right? She would have preaching meetings in her house, and she would invite influential people from the Church of England. And she would have Whitfield and other men preach in her house. And she actually had this little space in her house. It was called the Nicodemus Corner. It was like a little alcove, and it had a, a curtain or something like that around it. And she would allow dignitaries who didn't want to, to be, it to be known that they were there listening to the preachers in the awakening. She would allow them to sit in that little alcove and hear the preaching. So bishops would sit in there. And it was called the Nicodemus Corner. Right? You can see why. And so George Whitfield is talking to her one day. But let me read the Spurgeon quote because it starts before that. Whit Charles Spurgeon in his sermon, Heaven and Hell, says this. He says, There will be many in heaven who were drunkards on earth. There will be many harlots, prostitutes. Some of the most abandoned will be found there. He says, You remember the story of Whitfield's once saying that there would be some in heaven who were the devil's castaways. Some that the devil would hardly think good enough for him. And yet whom Christ would save. Lady Huntingdon once gently hinted that such language was not quite proper. But just at that time, there happened to be heard a ring at the bell, and Whitfield went downstairs. Afterwards, he came up and said, Your ladyship, what do you think a poor woman had to say to me just now? She was a sad profligate, someone with low morals, an immoral person. She was a sad profligate, and she said, Oh, Mr. Whitfield, when you were preaching, you told us that Christ would take in the devil's castaways, and I am one of them. And that was the means of her salvation. And now Spurgeon takes up his sermon again. Shall anyone, 
Shall anybody ever check us from preaching to the lowest of the low? I have been accused of getting all the rabble in London around me. God bless the rabble. God save the rabble, then, say I. The tax collector judged himself as being above. And you see Jesus warning about the tax collectors in many places and saying, and it's being said that they, they saw the rabble going in to God, being baptized by John, repenting of their sins, and even then they wouldn't believe. And what a horrible, horrible reality that was. And so what? We're not all the same. Not all of us have tried meth. Not all of us are drunkards. Not all of us have same-sex temptations that we've acted out on. Not all of us have had abortions. Not all of us had... You fill in the blank to what you think is a, a higher sin or a more mean sin. And then if you want to think yourself not being quite there... What do you do then? What do you got? Even if you could prove that you were less of a sinner, or even if you could say that since Jesus came to me and saved me, I've been less of a sinner, even if you could say all that, what have you got then? Now can I be infected with the yeast of the Pharisees? Is it okay now? that I've been saved by Jesus and that I've changed quite a bit? Absolutely not. John Calvin has a uh, uh, point about this section of the Scripture. He says, But it may be thought absurd that all should be reduced to the same level, since the purity of saints is widely different from that of the publican or the tax collector. I say... Whatever proficiency any man may have made in the worship of God and in true holiness, yet if he consider how far he is still deficient, there is no other form of prayer which he can properly use than to begin with the acknowledgement of guilt. For though some are more and others less, yet all are universally guilty. We cannot doubt, therefore, that Christ now lays down a rule for all to this effect, that God will not be pacified towards us unless we distrust works and pray that we may be freely reconciled. Everybody just like the tax collector. Over in the corner, head bowed, beat your breast, have mercy on me, the sinner. Everyone. No exemptions. Romans 3, verse 21 and following. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all, all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not the glory of the tax collector, not the glory of of the adulterer, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, not the glory of the Pharisee. 
being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? Boom! Where is it? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The tax collector went in faith and he is saved, justified, because Jesus Christ justifies him. Or did he? Was he justified? Maybe he had to go away and, and pray the rosary ten times. You think that was, you think that satisfied then? Doing that satisfaction, did it? How about this? A couple chapters later, we see Nicodemus. I'm sorry, not Nicodemus. We see Zacchaeus. A couple chapters in, this, in Luke later, we see Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus gave four times back to anybody he swindled after he met Jesus. Was that what justified him? Did that justify Zacchaeus? No. It was a wonderful expression of his faith in Christ and his joy and his desire to make things right that he had done. But it it had nothing to do with his justification. He didn't go away justified after meeting Jesus because he paid back things he had stolen. He went away justified because he believed. He put his faith in Jesus Christ. The Pharisee is not justified. He's full of quick-rising yeast. That's the Pharisee. I'm thankful that I'm not like... And so this morning, as we're all sitting here, everyone in this room, every child in the other part of the building, we're all just... I don't know, what are we, 200 here? 250 with all the children today, this morning, in the second service. We're all just 250 sacks of enriched, bleached flour. That's what we are. We're just ready for the yeast of hypocrisy. Just ready for it. We're tuned to it. Our desire is to be able to say to God, we've done something. It's just in us to want to do that. And we may not beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. We may not do that. We may not say that we're thankful that we're not. In fact, there's the problem with the Pharisee's prayer. He started right off by saying what he wasn't, didn't he? And what did the tax collector start off by doing? Have mercy on me, the sinner. He started right off by telling what he was. And that was the end of it. He didn't have to say what he did because he knew God knew everything that would be revealed someday. Have mercy on me, the sinner. I'm thankful, though, the Pharisees, that I, I'm thankful, the Pharisee says, that I'm different. I'm thankful that I'm not. What? 
a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian, a career woman with children, that Sunday soccer parent, the bar-hopping husband, the ambulance-chasing attorney, the fornicator, the adulterer, the tax evader, the speeder, the non-seatbelt wearer, the drug user, the thief, the woman that had the abortion, the single mom, you could, we could just spend all day, and I'm telling you, you'd be able to think of them like that because you know your heart enough to know that you know who you think you're better than. I, I know my heart enough to know that I know who I think I'm better than. And then when we're done making that list, then we'll start listing all the things we did. So what did we do? Well, you know, I've been tithing. And so that, there's that. I got that going for me. And we had a lot of snow this year, and I shoveled sidewalks on the church property. That's going for me. And then I did my devotions most of the time, and I, and I taught Sunday school, and I watched kids during Blooming Moms, and I, I lead a small group, and occasionally I preach on Sunday morning. I got all that going for me. Here's who I'm not like. Here's my list of, aren't I great? And it's just the complete wrong list. We don't go to God with any of that stuff. We have one thing we go to God with. Here I am. Have mercy on me. I see who you are. I see that I fall short. I don't care about everybody else. I do, but I don't care about them in relation to me. I only care that you'll have mercy on me, God, that you'll forgive me again. 1 Peter 5, in the middle of verse 5, going to verse 6, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And so God says, look, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. That's not the Pharisee. God is opposed to the proud. The Pharisee's prayer didn't go anywhere. He wasn't justified. But he gives grace to the humble. The tax collector went away justified, filled with the grace of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you at the proper time. I want to close, as we're preparing uh, for communion, I want to close with a quote from John Calvin that's just really succinct about this very issue. So listen to this quote. It's very short. And uh, there's a couple words I'm going to omit so that you can think about filling in the blank. Every man that is puffed up with self-confidence carries on blank, blank with God. Every man that is puffed up with self-confidence carries on blank, blank with God. What's the two words? Open war. Every man that is puffed up with self-confidence carries on open war with God, to whom we cannot be reconciled in any other way than by denial of ourselves, that is, by laying aside all confidence in our own virtue and righteousness and relying on his mercy alone. And so here we are this morning. Are you in a posture this morning to prepare to receive the grace of God?
of God. We have the wonderful privilege of coming to his table this morning. And this, this meal represents to us the reality of God's grace, and he gives us grace. But not if we're Pharisees. Not unless we're like that tax collector. Not unless we're beating our breast and saying, I know who you are, God, and I know who I am. Have mercy on me. I'm the one that's guilty. Have mercy on me. And not comparing ourselves to anyone else. And then what happens? He lifts us up. He pours his mercy on us. He assures us of his love and his wonderful kindness. And he demonstrates it by giving us Jesus. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you do love us and that you are suffering long with our sin and our desire to be self-righteous, that you've given us warnings to protect ourselves from just such sin. Help us, O God, Cause us to be truthful in our repentance and confession. Cause us to be honest with ourselves about who you are and who we are. And then give us your grace, we pray, through Jesus Christ. Amen.